If you don't know me before, my name is Jack, and we're going to be looking at Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. If you haven't got a Bible, don't worry about it. It will be on the screen behind me. But before we read that, I want to just ask the question, what's the distinguishing mark of people who say they follow Jesus? What does a Christian look like? How are people outside the church supposed to look in and say, I can tell that they follow Jesus? Different people might say different things over the years. If you looked at me today, maybe you conclude a Christian has to wear glasses, check shirt, and stand on a stage and waffle at you for four hours. I'm only joking, it'll be like 20 minutes. Um, But Christians, over the years, they've had all different sorts of external marks to demonstrate that they are people who follow Jesus. But really, the question that we should ask is, what does Jesus say is about the distinguishing mark of his people, how people can tell if they follow him? And it's interesting, because if you've been around us as a church, back in May, as we were going through John's gospel pointing to Jesus, you may have heard us hit this very topic. In John 13, verse 35, Jesus tells us, by this... Everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another, if you care for one another, if you're united together. He says, do you know what's going to help the world work out whether you follow me or not, to determine whether you're mine or not? It's simply by they will watch you, they'll see how you act, and whether you love one another. Jesus is saying the distinguishing mark of my people is not what you wear, it's not... Uh, what you quote or even how you sing, all of that's peripheral. But what's central is if you follow me, then you'll love one another. You'll be united. Do you love each other? And that's the same thing that Paul's getting to in the text that we're about to read in Philippians chapter 2. And he's not just going to tell us that we need to love one another and get along, but he's going to explain why as Christians we should love one another And he's going to give us some help on how we're going to do it. So let's read it together. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, Being one in the spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who, in being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a massive passage that we've just read. There's loads in there. 
But here, as Paul is speaking, he has this community in a place called Philippi, which is chasing after a cause. They've got the same mission. They've got a goal, which is to know and love God and share that with others. And Paul, in this bit of Philippians, he sees that these guys in Philippi, they love Jesus. But there's a bit of an issue. They're struggling to get along with one another. And Paul sees this and he goes, hang on a moment. This isn't just a secondary issue. This isn't just a side note. This is a central issue and a problem that we have to deal with. And Paul looks at this and he starts talking about the way that we treat each other. And he begins in verse 1. He says, he highlights the way that we treat each other isn't actually something that we try to do to earn God's favor for us so that he smiles upon us. But it's in response to what God has already done for us. Paul starts off in a way which I think is kind of meant to tease them a little bit. He says, he says something which is meant to have a really obvious answer. He makes an if-then statement. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement by being united with Christ. He asks them, is there any encouragement? Do you get any comfort from knowing that you are the, that the son, very Son of God has left heaven, come down to earth to love you and to rescue you? Is there any comfort in saying that he came to take away your guilt and your shame, where he could rewrite all of your past so that all that has been done by you and to you no longer writes your future? But instead, if you're in Christ, you are in him. There is a free gift of grace through the Son of God, Jesus. Is there any comfort? in being adopted by the Almighty as a child into his family. Any comfort at all at being known that God did all this for you, not just because he had to, but because he likes you and he loves you. Is there any comfort in any of that? Is there any encouragement in any of that? Anything? And what's the response supposed to be? Yes! Yes, of course! Amen! Hallelujah! And he says, if that's the case, then make my joy complete in verse 2. And I love that. He says, if any of that is true, make me happy. And why would he say that? Because he's their spiritual father. He's their pastor, their leader. And he's seen them develop and grow in their relationship with God. And he says, "If, if there's any encouragement in any of this, then do it for Jesus and do it for me. I want to see your joy complete. And then in verse 2, he starts telling them and encouraging them how they should do this and how that love and that encouragement should lead them into action at being unity in the church. So what does he tell them to do? First, he says, be like-minded. Get on the same page. Have the same perspective. Be united in your thoughts and your actions towards one another. He then goes on saying, have the same love. Look out for one another. Love and care for each other in the church. He says, be of one spirit. And I love it. Paul kind of has just made up a word. He's taken the word for one and the word for soul, rammed it together. He's saying, be one soul. Be so connected with each other that it's as if your heart beats to the same rhythm. And then, fourthly, he repeats the first one again. He says, be of one mind. Because he just can't stress it enough. He says the encouragement and the comfort that you receive if you're in Christ should lead us together to unity, being unified together in the church and loving one another. So what does he mean by this unity and togetherness? Does it mean we have to be uniform? 
We've all got to dress the same, look the same, act the same. No. But what he means is we should be synced up. That it means that we should be intent on the same purposes as we are in Christ Jesus and on the same mission together as the church. I mean, should everyone in a band be doing exactly the same thing? No. We don't need the bassist to be playing the drums. And, well, unless you're Ryan occasionally, but we don't need them playing the drums. We've got a drummer. We don't need the drummer to stop drumming and sing. We've already got singers. We don't need everybody to be playing the keyboard or doing exactly the same thing. But what we do need is we need everyone to play their own part so that what we hear is a song and not a racket. So you don't have to be exactly like me. I don't have to be exactly like you. We don't need to be like each other. But if we're in Christ and we follow Jesus, then we should knit together and we should play well because we have a song that we're singing for the world to hear. So we have a purpose to chase. Let's get on the same page. Let's be united. Let's be united in Christ. Let's care for one another because true spirituality always looks like unity. That's the kind of spirituality that God likes. He says, I've knit you together with me through my son, Jesus Christ. And through him, I'm knitting you together with the church. That's what he's looking for. To love God is to love his people. If there's any joy in being knit together with God, then we should be knit together as the people, as the church. We should get along as the people of God. And I think it's interesting. Should the, should the church become love and unity for the outside world? Yes. Should Christianity be love towards other people outside the church? Definitely. But here what Paul focuses on, he says, we need to get it right in here, in the church. We need to have a white hot center of affection for each other. Because no one wants to go to a party where everyone's mean to each other. They don't. Would you want to go to something like that? Do you know what? That party was amazing. Everybody was just like making snide comments, crude remarks to one another. The, the tension was in the air was just so thick and full of hatred. No! You don't want to go to that. You don't want to be a part of that. So Paul, instead we want to go to a party where we look around and we go, hang on, Wow. These people really love each other and care for each other. And you know what's really cool? They didn't just love each other and care for each other, but they invited me in to become part of it. That's just brilliant. And Paul's encouraging us. Let's get it right in the church so that others see it and can join in. And as I was thinking about this, I got the image that I thought we're meant to be like in the church, a campfire and not a torch. That... Some of us, maybe we've grown in our faith and we've been more like a battery-powered torch that it, it illuminates truth, but you know what? Behind it, there's not much warmth or heat. And maybe we're technically accurate, but is there a white-hot heat that cares for one another? And I think a lot of people maybe even walk away from the church because they think, do you know what? It's maybe technically accurate, a lot of light, but no heat. A lot of truth, but not much love towards one another. And Jesus said, you will know that they're my people by the way they treat each other. 
He doesn't say by the way you treat the outside world. He says by the way you treat each other. He says people out there will know that you're mine or not by the way you act towards one another. And they'll see that love and they'll want to join in. They'll want to come out of the cold and the dark and to gather around the fire of warmth and light within the church. That's what we're supposed to be. And Paul's saying if we're like this, that's because true spirituality in the church always looks like unity. We're supposed to love each other and get on the same page. We're supposed to care for one another, have the same goals in Christ. Now, maybe that doesn't sound too revolutionary to you. Love each other, get along. As I was preparing for this, I actually read a story in a book uh, about a child. It may be quite a typical story of a child going to church with his mum, getting dragged along. And he sort of, in the story, he says to his mum, look, we're going to church. The preacher's going to get up there. He's, we all know what he's going to do. He's going to tell us how we should act, how we should behave, how we should love one another. If I was preaching, I'd get up there and I'd just say, you all know what to do. Just get on and do it. And his mum's response was, aye, but we, she was meant to be Scottish in the thing. But I can't do a Scottish accent. Aye, but will you tell them how? That's awful, I know. But the point is, his mum's saying, People may well know what they're supposed to do, but they don't necessarily know how to do it. Are you going to tell them? Hey, everyone, get along and love one another. Is that really a shocking message? Hey, Jack, what did you talk about at church on Sunday? I talked about love and unity. I mean, come on, that sounds like a pretty standard Christian message, doesn't it? And yet we still fall out with our families. We still fall out with colleagues at work. And if we're truly honest... We fall out with people in this very room, part of the church. So how do we really do that? How do we pursue unity together? How do I love people even when they annoy me? How do I build unity and a team with some heat together? How do we run together on the same mission and love one another in the church? Well, Paul gives us the secret to this unity in verse 3, where he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. The secret to unity is humility. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition. No, maybe you hear that and you might be thinking, hang on a moment, does that mean that I shouldn't have any ambition? I shouldn't be ambitious? I shouldn't have any goals or, or aspirations to achieve? I mean, is that what that passage means? No. As you read the Bible, you'll see that Paul, who wrote this very message, he was an ambitious guy. He had goals that he was going after, that he, set, he had set before him, that he chased after. I don't think Jesus sat at home going, I don't know, guys, what do you want to do? Um, I think he had aspirations, he had goals, he had targets he was aiming for. So I don't think it says don't have any ambition at all. But there is something important here to grasp. Because this, in this verse, what Paul said would have completely offended the Philippians as they heard it. Because Philippian culture was all about selfish ambition. It was about distinguishing yourself unapologetically. It was all about making me awesome. And Paul says to them, abandon that. Don't do it. 
He was offensive to their culture. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. And that word selfish ambition, it doesn't mean a drive to succeed or be successful. It's literally a mercenary spirit. A mercenary is someone who's fighting not just for the cause, they're fighting for themselves. And you know what? The money is good at this moment for this cause, so I'm fighting it. But as soon as it's not good, I'm gone. A mercenary is part of the team, but at the end of the day, they're really there to serve their own interests and their own needs. I say I'm part of this cause, but really I'm here for me. I talk a big game, that I'm out there serving others, but at the end of the day, I'm a mercenary. I'm in this to the degree that it benefits me, And it's a selfish ambition. I want to advance me. But Paul says, we don't want that in the church. It's not welcome in the kingdom of God. That's not what we do. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, he says. And actually, if I can nerd out for a minute, in the Greek, he actually doesn't put in the verb. He just says, nothing out of selfish ambition. Nothing out of vain conceit. Nothing is the key here. He wants to emphasize this because this is important. The key to unity is humility. He says, nothing out of selfish ambition. Nothing out of vain conceit. Which vain conceit in the Greek is a combination of two words. Empty glory. He says that's a pursuit when you chase after things for yourself, which at the end of it is really empty. It adds up to nothing. It's worthless. So we don't pursue that in the church. Instead, we value others above ourselves. But the question still stands. How do I do that? How do I become more humble? Paul gives us the clue in that sentence. Second half of verse 3. It says, Rather in humility value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Paul says, don't think about yourself. Think about others. And that, that word where he uses looking to is actually the Greek word skopos, which is where we get the word scope. It's like he's saying, when you go into a room, scope out other people, see their needs, and help them. Humility As C.S. Lewis puts it, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. Hey, I'm just a nobody. I have no talents. I can't really do anything. I'm not very good. That's not humility. Jesus was the most humble man who ever existed. I don't think Jesus was sat there going, yeah, I'm the son of God, but what does that really even mean? Jesus didn't knock himself down a peg or two. No, he stood upright and he used his power for the sake of other people. So you ask, how do I do that? We live in a culture that says, you've got to look after number one. If I don't put myself forward, I'm going to get left behind in the dust. How do I get out of that mentality? Well, if you're going to a place you've never been before, you follow a leader who's already been there. And that's where Paul gets to in verse 5. He doesn't give us a 20 pieces of advice on how to become more humble. Or a step-by-step guide to humility. Instead, he says, let me show you a picture of someone who's been there before you. So in the last few minutes together, can I show you a picture that Paul shows? How can we have one mind? How can we be one-spirited? How are we going to get along? How are we going to grow as a church? And as we grow as a church, friction is inevitable, but we don't let that friction tear us apart. 
How are we going to grow in humility as a church, as individuals, as a person, as a spouse, as a parent, child, friend, colleague, or even boss? Well, we have one mind. Whose mind? Verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We all have one mind. We get on his page. It's not my page. It's not your page. It's his page. We have the mindset of Christ Jesus. And actually, I prefer the ESV version, if you've got it. It it says this, have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We are on Jesus' page and mindset. If we already know him, then it's available to us. And then to go on and explain this mindset of Christ Jesus, Paul then breaks into a song. And loads of people, if you read the commentaries, they start debating. Did Paul write this song or is he just starting a song that they already knew? Do, 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 and then they'd all join in. Do you know what? doesn't matter. But it's a really cool song. It's one of the most beautiful poems that we have about Jesus Christ. And it talks about him. And in verse 6, it says, Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Isn't that amazing? He's the very nature of God himself. Jesus is what God is. The Gospel of John puts it this way in chapter 17. He says he had a glory with the Father that was before the world began. Or Hebrews chapter 1, which Katie read this morning. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Jesus was once asked by his disciples, Hey, show us the Father. And his response was, You see me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is God. So you want to know what God looks like? Then you look at how Jesus treats people. You want to know how God thinks about the poor? You see how Jesus treats the poor. You want to know how uh, God treats people who've made an absolute mess of their life? Then you look at how Jesus treats those people. Why? Because Jesus is the very nature of God. Paul's starting with the most elevated picture of Jesus that you can get. Think about that. It's amazing. He's not saying Jesus was just a nice guy or a good teacher or some sort of higher spiritual consciousness. He's saying Jesus is God. And that's Christianity. The guy we're talking about is not a moral teacher. He is the eternal God. And even though Jesus being in the very nature God, he did not consider his equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. When Jesus had all this power, he could have used it for his own selfish gain. He was well within his rights to stand up there and go, hey, I'm the son of God, so I'm going to use my power for my comfort. I'm going to stay on the throne. I'm just going to keep the angels around me. You sing holy, holy, holy. Hey, you guys... Feed me some fruit or something. I'm just going to stay here comfortable. And that's what a lot of people do. The minute I get power, I use it for me. When I get money, I use it for me. We see people do it all the time. As they move up the ladder in business, they become the, the, the managing director. And instantly we see, hey, they've spent money on getting a nicer car or a swanky suit. But you know, it's us as well. As soon as we get some money, hey, I bought some new shoes, I, I got a phone upgrade, I decided to buy a brand new massive TV, and we keep buying things for me until we run out of that extra money, and then as soon as I get stuff, I just invest it in me. That's the normal thing that people do. 
But Jesus, he had all the stuff. He had all the power of God. And he didn't see it as something to be used for his own advantage. So what did he do? He made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. How? Verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus should have rolled in with a chariot being drawn by a white horse, with a fanfare behind him. Or, I mean, let's be honest, he should have arrived when electricity and the combustion engine happened on a helicopter with armed guards and a, a, a carpet rolled out for him and paparazzi taking loads of photographs. But instead, it's this infinite condescension. Jesus, instead of the white horse and the fanfare, he's born in a manger, quietly and out the way. He arrives humbly and he says, hey, I've arrived not just in a manger, but to serve you. And we see that all throughout his life in many different ways. Son of David, have mercy on me. I want to be able to see. Yeah? Here you go. I want to help you, so I'm going to fix that. Jesus, Jesus, they've run out of wine at this wedding. Mom, it's not really my time. Okay, fine. Let's get some jars and we'll sort these guys out. We want our friend to walk as they start digging through the ceiling and lowering him down mid-sermon. Jesus doesn't go, oh, busy here, guys. No, he says, okay, not only am I going to heal you, but your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. Time and time again, Jesus, he came and he served people. He took care of people. People of high esteem, yeah, you know what, I'm going to be here and I'm going to spend time with you. People of no esteem, I'll sit with you. And I've got time for you. If you don't know Jesus, then he wants to meet with you too. He's got time for you. He wants to serve you and forgive you of your sins. He was kind. He helped. He served. And one of his last acts before he was murdered was to get on his knees and wash the feet of his disciples. I'm going to clean the mud off of the feet of my people, even the one who's going to betray me. Rather, he made himself nothing. Being made... taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He is God. And yet in the infinite condescension, Jesus, instead of taking that power, he took the form of a human being. He took on our inconveniences, and in verse 8 it says he became obedient he became a servant, obedient to the rules. He didn't make, he, instead of the one making the rules, he's deciding to become the one following the rules. I only do what my father says to do. I'll be obedient even when my God says to me, go and die. So I'll do it. And not just death, but death on a cross, the most humiliating death that you could imagine. Because they would strip your clothes, they'd put you out in front of the city on a cross, and people would come and they would mock you as they were going in and out of the city to do business. God the Father says, I will make you die in the most excruciating and humiliating way, so that whatever any other human being in all of history suffers, they will know that you can relate to them. That you know what it's like because you've been there. Jesus says, I will take on all of your suffering, all of your humiliation, and you will know that I understand your pain. That's how far he went. 
Some of us, we might follow Jesus to the point of inconvenience. So when you hear God say, love your neighbor, you'll respond, yeah, but you don't know what they've done. You don't know what they're like. Yes, he does. Or you hear Jesus say, hey, I want you to follow me with everything you've got. That includes your money. So why don't you invest it into the kingdom of God and give it away to the poor instead of buying that new TV? And you go, hey, this isn't an either or, Jesus. I've got a bit more money now. So maybe I'll buy the TV now. And then when I make a lot more money, I might give it to the poor. Sometimes we obey to the point of inconvenience. But Jesus, he obeyed beyond inconvenience over to the point of servanthood and the point of death itself. Our leader was an infinite condescension for you and for me. Ultimate humility. So why do we embrace humility? Because he did it. And not only did he do that, he did it for us. And I love it in verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus came in, he came in low and humbled. So then God the Father raises him up high and exalts. It says that Jesus came in low and then the God the Father placed him high and said, not only am I going to bless you for being humble, but I'm going to give you a name above every name so that every single person of all history will bow to the knee and tongue, every tongue confess that you are Lord. And then the infinite condescension has become the ultimate exaltation. So we celebrate a Jesus who used his power, not for himself, but instead used it for us. He has been humble, and in his humility, he's united us with himself and God the Father. If we trust our lives to him and we follow him, then we too are exalted as a, chi- as a child of God with all the blessings of Christ upon us. Therefore, if we're in Christ, we do the same as him. I had a king who was high but came low. Therefore, I am going to get off my high horse and I'm going to care about other people. I'm going to come in humble. I'm going to scope out your needs and help you because I have been elevated if I'm in Christ. Amen. Amen. I'm just going to pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, the ultimate example of humility, who did not consider equality with you something to be grasped and used to his own advantage, but instead used his power to serve, to redeem, and to save. And Lord, we don't want to hold on to uh, petty arguments or, or use our position in Christ if we follow him to to our own advantage and our own gain and our own righteousness, but we want to use it to scope out other people's needs and to serve you and to serve them.